Just a couple little announcements before <clears throat> I start the message. Of course, you, you all know me. My name's Earl Jones, and uh, I've been uh, in the identity movement since the late 70s, and I was ordained in 83 by Sheldon Emery, and I'm very proud to be able to say that, as uh, Brother Peters is too, I'm sure. But it's good to see you, and uh, it's good to see new faces here. We have to count on new faces in order to grow. And we're real pleased and we're honored to have you here. And we do pray that you continue to stay with us, be patient, diligent, and with an open heart and an open mind. Uh, it's one of the strange phenomena, of course it's an act of God, that takes place at these camps. Without any collusion on the part of the speakers, without any... Uh, uh, knowledge beforehand, what we are directed to speak on and this sort of thing. We don't even know what the camp theme is. We, I didn't know until I got here. But it's always a very strange thing that all of the speakers talk on subjects that just follow one another and they just fall into a category all by themselves. So God makes a theme for the camps, whether we... Um, uh, like to do it or not. And honest, there's no collusion on our part to do this. The second little ministry point I want to give is that most of you know that I have an, an intelligence newsletter that I put out bi-monthly. Uh, it goes to all 50 states plus many foreign countries and a lot, a lot of people receive it and uh, I'm proud to put it out. And I have, for those who are new and don't have it and are not on the mail list, uh, there are the last three issues uh, which uh, I, I think are, should prove interesting to you, that you're welcome to have a copy each. Uh, just take it with you, uh, because uh, unless, of course, you're already on the mail list, you get it then. But uh, anyway, you may take it with you and read it, and you can sign up for it there if you'd care to. It's on a gift basis only, and I do it this way, and as time goes on, you get my newsletters, you may receive them on a gift basis and give me what you think it's worth. Uh, so it's worked that way. Okay, we'll start the message. Another facet to this reformation, if you would call it that, that's taking place in America today is that we must understand how we got into the problems we're in. Why have we thought the way we have thought? And how did it happen? And, uh, why is identity different? What you're going to hear here now, what you have heard this morning uh, from Brother Hoskins, and what you hear in this is that there is uh, a movement taking place that is going to a, uh, the concept that our forefathers had and what God gave us in the Bible and the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Numbers on how government was to be established. And so <clears throat> we're doing this, and we know that uh, we are oppressed for that one issue. And the reason we're oppressed is that we teach what we would call the kingdom gospel. We teach the whole gospel. We teach what Jesus would want us to, to believe and do and follow in the kingdom. And that is different what, than what we in the church gospel, totally different. And so I want to talk about that and kind of show just how this took place. We teach 
and follow the kingdom gospel. And there's a vast difference. You've got to get off of your seat and get moving when you're in the kingdom gospel. You've got to do things. Now, we hear constantly of the word ecclesia, and we recognize it to mean several things. As we study the word itself and the meaning of it, it's used to mean the, the church, and that's truism, the kingdom, the body of Christ, Israel, and this means also the called out or the selected ones. All of these uh, definitions are true for the word ecclesia. Now, when we consider all of those definitions to word, mean the word ecclesia, we can immediately run into a problem as it applies to how it is being used today in the churches. There's an axiom which says that things equal the same thing or equal to each other. Now, with this word ecclesia, as we use it in the churches today, in the Judeo-Christian churches, that may not necessarily be true. To me, it's extremely important and it is a key function to why we're different and why we are under attack for doing what we're doing and believing what we believe. If you would, please turn to Matthew 16, and we'll start there. Matthew 16, of course, is going to be the words of Jesus. Here's the passage that has been so widely misused throughout the Christian era, and it has caused much unnecessary harm to Christianity in general. Matthew chapter 16, and we'll read verse 18, starting there. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now the word rock in that verse is number 4073, Petra in Strong's Concordance, and it, and, uh, it, uh, is, um, uh, it means Petra, which is simply the feminine word of number 4074, Petros. 4073, Petra for the rock, is the same as number 4074, Petros. Both mean Peter the Apostle. The phrase probably would have been more clear if it had been translated as this in my mind. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon you, Peter, I will build my kingdom, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, the kingdom. Now why do I say the kingdom instead of the church. Is there a church? Yes. Is there a need for a church? Yes. But why do I say kingdom there instead of church? Let's read the next verse, verse 19. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say the church of heaven. He said the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, what is he saying? He is saying something that is the key to the entire problem 
of just what we're supposed to do in the kingdom gospel and the kingdom living. He's talking about the gates to the city. He's talking about government. When you loose things on earth and it is loosed in heaven, you are releasing a government function. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. You are talking binding in government terms. There is no separation of church and state. Or rather, should we say, there is no separation of kingdom and state. It cannot be. If we are to be a kingdom of priests, we are to be in command of the gates of the city, the government. We have foreigners over us because our churches have not taught us what they should have taught us. Now, let's continue with this concept. Turn, if you would, to Matthew 6. I mean, chapter 6. Now, we all know this one by, by heart, and it's going to continue in this same vein. Chapter, uh, verse 9 and 10, chapter 6. After this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as it is in heaven. Jesus is talking about one and the same thing that he said to Peter. Jesus is relating verse 19 of chapter 16 with verse 9 and 10 of chapter 6. We know as the kingdom prayer. Petros, the apostle Peter, was to build the kingdom. He was charged to build the kingdom. Paul was to build the official church structure. Why did God, in all of his infinite wisdom, set it up that way? It has complicated it because we misunderstand it. We misunderstand Paul and we don't read what Jesus has to say. Last year, at this very camp, I gave a message titled The Basis of Men and Praetorism. In that message, I made this statement, and I quote it. Origen, and Origen was one of the early, early church fathers. He was very powerful in setting up the structure for the church, how, what the church would teach, what they wouldn't teach, what they believed, what they wouldn't believe, and so forth. Origen taught, for example, I said, that in Genesis 1 and verse 5, the morning and evening was discussed, but the discussions regarding the creation of the sun was not made until verses 14 and 16. How many of you ever observed that? Origen taught that these were presented as stumbling blocks to drive us to the higher significance that was intended in that passage. It was done in such a way. It wasn't done unintentionally. There's nothing unintentional in the Bible. It's not just put in there for filler. There is a reason it was done this way. And Origen thought, and I believe it might be a very good thought, that it was done as to place as a stumbling block for us to try to understand the deeper significance. And it's the same situation as I see it 
between what Peter was to do and what Paul was to do. Now we will see the results of these stumbling blocks a little bit later. And in my mind, what Peter was saying in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, and I'll read that, an account that that the long-suffering of our Lord is is salvation, even as to our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, he, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also in other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Now, you know, they say that people have Alzheimer's, don't know that they have Alzheimer's. But I do think, even though I'm three, four, and 15 years, I do think that I understand what that means. Paul and Peter have two concepts of the same thing, and they have been presented to us as stumbling blocks, and we went down in Judeo-Christianity in the wrong direction because Judeo-Christianity does not read the red letters in the red letter edition. Now to further amplify on the relationship between the church and the kingdom, let's read some more of the passages in Matthew 6. Let's even start with verse, verse 1. And all of this is important to, to this understanding. Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them, otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou dost thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. And notice there the word synagogue is there, and it was there intentionally. We'll talk about it later. As do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left, left hand know what thy right hand is doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father, which seeth in secret himself, shall reward thee openly. Now, let's stop there just for a moment in this, pa- this passage. Well, that's the reason why we, in the identity movement, do not pass the plate in our congregations and we give our gifts privately. That's the reason we do it, because Jesus said so. Some of the other churches have men with special talents and a gift of gab that get up before the congregation and practically browbeat them into doing that. They give large sums to their church. But our movement does not even approve of that. In fact, we balk at the practice. Also in verse 3, Jesus is talking about the body of Christ, the left hand and the right hand. That's us. Paul reiterates that in 1 Corinthians 12 regarding the body of Christ, and it is relating it to the kingdom. 
when we talk about the body of Christ, we are also talking about the kingdom. Continuing with verse 5, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not do as the hypocrites are, be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Jesus is talking. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and pray to the Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathens do, do they, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Jesus, in that entire passage, is showing that the body of Christ is directly related to the kingdom, but that it is not necessarily centered in the formal meeting place which is translated synagogue in that instance. And why is it translated synagogue? And the word is the same as we'll see later as church. It takes the, 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 the hard saying off of the back of the church, doesn't it? They could have used church there just as easily as synagogue. But they make it sound like somebody else is doing that. He is really chastising the priestcraft of pompous churches. To show this point, the Ryrie study version of both the King James and the New American Standard versions had these passages that Jesus just spoke of in Matthew 6 with the heading, The Practices of Kingdom Life. It doesn't say church life. It says kingdom life. In this message, which will be, be in two parts, I want to talk about the church that Jesus gave us. I want to separate out in our thinking the church that Jesus gave us from what has come down through the centuries for the concept of the church. And there is a lot of history that proves the points that will be made. We will be giving historical examples and biblical passages to prove our points. First, academic question. Why did the Puritans and the Pilgrims come to America? It was to get away from the priestcraft of the European churches. Brother Hoskins talked about that too. The English church had become no different than Popish Rome. This country was built around the concept that there would be no priestcraft or kingcraft in our system. And yet we got it. The founding fathers were Christians. Our government was to be Christian in nature. We were to be the possessor and the keeper of the gates. Us. Not some system out there that has determined who you're going to vote for before you even have a chance to vote. Who you're going to put up before you even have a chance to put up to be elected as president or whatever. That's not kingdom living. It is nothing but an extension of priestcraft. 
Next question. Why do you think that there are now more Christians, and this is a fact, I'm sorry to say it's a fact, who have a genuine Christian ethic, that person who would walk that extra mile, that person would help somebody else in need when he's hurting, who are not going to establish churches, more who are not going to establish Judeo-Christian churches, than there are those who attend regular church, uh, church services and are churchgoers. It is for the same reason. They are removing themselves from priestcraft. They recognize in their hearts that the laws are here. They recognize in their hearts that they are the kingdom of priests and they want to have the kingdom. They want to possess the gates and they can't do it, and their churches won't help them. They are removing themselves from that priestcraft. They understand the contents of those passages that I have read perhaps much better than what they have been taught in their churches, do you think not? Priestcraft is Gnostic, and it is esoteric. We have dozens dozens, if not hundreds, of seminaries, and I call them cemeteries, and colleges for each of the multitude of denominations. Each of them teach a different story, and only they who have been successfully graduated know the great secrets of the Bible. Now that's wrong. All of us have the opportunity to know the great secrets of the Bible. We just need to read it and pray. Read it and pray. Ask for guidance and wisdom. We are a kingdom of priests. Why is it that way? They don't want you to know what the kingdom is. Why else would they be willing to separate church and state? Why is it that the churches of today are the most willing to separate themselves from the state when they should be right out there demanding that this is the way it's going to be done in the name of Christ Jesus? This is the way you will run your government, our government, my government. I have had the most fortunate opportunities down through the years to sneak it speak at small gatherings. Uh, these are small gatherings in maybe not over 25, 30, 40 people in small off-the-road little communities all over the country. And I really have considered it an honor to be able to do this. And in, in these meetings, it may be on uh, this earth first bit and uh, on some of the eco ecological problems that are going on and the environment problems and stuff like that, or maybe uh, anything else. But the, some of these things uh, are so necessary in understanding what the kingdom is, so I'm real pleased to be there. And uh, I um, have seen that most of them walked out of their churches, but they have that Christian ethic. They really you can sense it when you talk to them. They, they talk about Christ. They talk about the Bible. And they understand the Bible, but they don't go to church. And there are some there who go to a denominational church 
and then and they're dissatisfied that they come to these meetings to learn more about kingdom living. But I say unto those people, you're wrong. Because what you're doing is you're help funding the National Council of Churches, which is doing nothing but destroying your country. It is communist in nature. It is not biblical. And so you're wrong when you do this. If you went to a little off-the-road church that did not belong to the National Council of Churches would be one thing. But no, that's not what happened. So you're wrong in even doing that. In Matthew 18, let's turn there if you would, starting in verse 18. Matthew 18, starting in verse 18. Here's some more of the sayings of Jesus. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. It's the same passage, really, isn't it? So you see, when two or more of us are gathered together in his name, he's there. We are a part of his body. So when we return to the question of what the word ecclesia means, we can go back to the idea of the church being the kingdom as we read earlier in Matthew 16, verse 16 through 18, or 18 and 19. Remember again, one of the definitions for ecclesia was the called out or the chosen. Abraham was called out and he was chosen. He was chosen to be the father of many nations. He was chosen because of his obedience to the laws that of God when he congregated an assembly. It would have been called an ecclesia of 318 trained servants, and we would have called that a militia, but it was called an ecclesia. They were trained servants to bring judgment to the kid, kidnappers of Lot and his family. The Septuagint uses the word ecclesia almost a hundred times. The Septuagint is a translation we should study very, very thoroughly. It uses the word ecclesia almost a hundred times as the translation of a word kahal in the Hebrew. Have you ever heard that word before in the Hebrew? Kahal, the kahila, the kahal. It's a term that the Talmudic Jews use. They want it kept unto themselves. Why? Because they know how it is the keeper of the gates. Why? Because they want to rule. Now, if we looked at it as kahal and the keeper of the gates, all the way back to, to, uh, to the very, very beginning, all the way back to Isaac, Jacob, Israel, Abraham, we would understand that word kahal. 
The basic meaning of both words is a meeting or gathering. A meeting or gathering. It doesn't make any difference how many are present, and it can be for any purpose. It can be for military duty, the kahal, the ecclesia. Or it can be for civic purposes. The most significant word, use of the word kahal, however, or the ecclesia, the most significant from the biblical point of view, is in the Old Testament is when Israel assembled before God on Mount Oreb. If you would turn to Exodus chapter 19. Here is an example of where the leaders or elders, now it doesn't have to be leaders only, it doesn't have to be uh, uh, just assemblymen only, or it can be everybody. But here is one place where it was only the elders or leaders who were called to assemble. We will read starting in verse 7. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people, elders, and laid before their faces all these words which, which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. Abraham knew the laws of God. They were in his heart. And he knew what the Lord would have wanted him to do. He undoubtedly must have thought, the Lord has spoken, and we will do. In Deuteronomy 9, in verse 10, all of the people of Israel, all of the people of Israel, met in assembly. Again, the Septuagint translates the Hebrew word kahal as ecclesia. So all of the people of Israel met in assembly. Old Testament theology. In the New Testament, the word ecclesia has even a broader usage. So even in the New Testament, if our Judeo-Christian churches understood their responsibility for kingdom living, they would understand the broader concept of the word ecclesia than even given in the Old Testament words. It can either, can either be, again, secular or religious. Same thing, no difference. It can be a, for a regularly constituted meeting, such as we find in Acts 19. Let me read verse 19, or read verse 39 of Acts 19. But if you inquire of anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. Read verse 19, or read verse 39 of Acts 19. But if you inquire of anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. Ecclesia can also be used for a spontaneous meeting. Let me read in verse 32 and in verse 40. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused. And the more, and this was just a spontaneous meeting. And for the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. For we are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar, there being no cause whereby we may give a, an account of this concourse. All right, so not all assembly meetings, not all ecclesias are going to be just cut and dried and real fit and polished. You're going to get 
into times when you have spontaneous meetings, and some of these spontaneous meetings may not be real good, and you've got to get them straightened out. You've got to get them on the right track. Part of kingdom living. Matthew 13, the parables of the kingdom. That isn't all rosy life in the parables of 13, uh, Matthew 13, is it? There's a lot of troubles in there. And there's a lot of troubles in kingdom living. And we've got to get off our duff and do things to make it work. Ecclesia often refers to a specific group gathering together on a regular basis. Maybe for prayer, it may be for deliberations and instructions. For example, in Acts 11 and verse 26, we can read this. And when he had found him, he brought him into Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. So the church in those days was called the Ecclesia, just as it can be today. But notice again that they met together on a regular basis, not only for prayer and instructions, but for deliberations. And it didn't all have to refer only into biblical terms. We in our movement speak at these, uh, at these meetings in many, many presentations that are not biblically oriented terms. But they are a part of kingdom living. A very big part of kingdom living. What are we doing wrong? Or what are we doing right? Where should we go from here? All a part of kingdom living. All a part of ecclesia. All a part of the kingdom church. In... um, my own family, on my mother's side, we <coughs> trace our lineage all the way back to a guy by the name of Menno Simons in Germany in the 1500s, in the early 1500s, late 1400s. If you study these people, uh, they simply broke away from Popish Roman Church because of priestcraft. Simple as that. They believed, as an example, just as we do, that baptism should be done at the age of accountability. We believe that. We teach that strongly. We will not baptize generally under the age of majority. Now show their disgust for the priestcraft and to show how they deliberate uh, in the, the aspects of their regular meetings in their church building, in their ecclesia assembly, they... Uh, discuss matters of health, fire insurance, stuff like this. Consequently, they have a very unique system of insurance where nobody pays a dime, any premium whatsoever for their protection. Only when someone has a fire or someone is sick, they all chip in together to pay the cost. Now, there are other Christian groups today that are following the example that these people gave us before. It's working very well. It's an excellent system. It's not a money-making scheme at all. It just helps your brother. And it helps him on a, you might say, just a community project basis. 
But these poor people were treated like animals, and they were chased in around the hills like animals for what they believed and what they did. Kind, gentle people. In my own family, I have ancestors who had their tongues cut out and were burned at the stake. I know them by name. All because of priestcraft. So when I discuss this, I guess I must get it in the family for maybe they want to cut my tongue out. There's a place in <coughs> Syria called the Valley of Christians where a man who used to be in our movement came from ancestors in the Valley of Christians. And uh, he said that the ecclesia, the kahal, met whenever and wherever conditions permitted. And each of the men would stand and turn and say his piece. It didn't all have to be biblical. It could be uh, other matters pertaining to kingdom life. And they would discuss and they would preach. And when he got through, he would sit down. The next man would stand up. And he would say something, whoever wanted to. And so it just rotated around. So the ecclesia could meet anywhere, discuss anything, and any member of the body could make his point, deliberations, a part of kingdom living. That's another very strong point that we in our movement believe in. Every person has an opportunity to deliberate and make his point. Make this case more clear, I want to discuss another word related to the ecclesia. The Septuagint defines the Hebrew word kohelet as Ecclesiastes, and it means a speaker in the assemblies. A speaker in the assemblies. Ecclesiastes. Kohelet. The translators in the Septuagint realize that the word kohelet is simply the feminine principle of kahal. Thus, kohelet is related to the ecclesia. The book Ecclesiastes means a member of the assembly, a member of an assembly. You should notice in your Bible that when you turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, right under the title are the words, or the preacher. How did you get there? The word preacher comes from the Latin word coxionatur. And it's a Latin word, and it was first used by Jerome. Now, we have heard messages before. I have given messages. Brother Pete has given messages where showing where Jerome was perhaps one of the greatest Judaizers of all of Christianity. He got his training on the Old Testament, as, as did many of the other people at the time, from Jewish rabbis who believed in the Talmud. Obviously, when you teach someone the Old Testament and, he, and you are a rabbi and he is listening, are you not going to teach him what the Talmud would translate that to be? Obviously. So he was a Talmudist at heart. You got the word preacher from Jerome and it was given to him undoubtedly in his work as he learned the ancient Hebrew. You notice he didn't say church. He said assembly. 
students of the Hebrew recognized this as being important because the content of the book Ecclesiastes more closely fits the wisdom category than it does the sermonic. And yet there is such a wealth of knowledge in the book of Ecclesiastes that so much all of the other of our theology can come out of that book of Ecclesiastes. And we use it immensely in our work. Now let's do a little bit of history and fit this introduction into how our forefathers used it. You see, they studied the Hebrew, the Greek, and the Latin in the schools in those days. We don't today. Today we consider it all a great big waste of time to learn of these fine ancient languages. We are taught if a calculator or a computer won't do it, let's forget it. We're not even taught how to read anymore. Before England the conquer, uh, was conquered by William the Conqueror in 1066, the people owned their property and loyal title. And you can find this in some of my old newsletters. I did went into great detail with this, which means they owned it outright and didn't make it didn't have to pay taxes to anyone to keep it. After King William took over, the entire system of government was changed to that of a fiefdom, just like it is, like it was back then on the continent. The people were required to pay taxes to the government just as we do today in order for them to be allowed to supposedly own their property. Now, the, through the years after 1066, the concept of government became very totalitarian because of the Jewish moneylenders from Rome France. The money lenders that William brought with him uh, from Rome were figured out more and more ways to spend money at usury. And of course that meant more and more taxes. And the entire country was <coughs> outraged. So they met in ecclesia, met in assemblies, and discussed the problem. They organized their trade associations and other groups. Again, these would have been called the ecclesia because they were doing something for the kingdom living. They would also have been represented what they could have called as being a part of that kingdom. The same word that Jesus used in all of his parables. The problems in England was a result of violations of God's laws. Now here now is the key to the entire point of what the ecclesia is. It is the key to the stumbling blocks which I described earlier between Jesus, what Jesus gave us through Peter in Matthew 16 and what have become the churches throughout the years as described by Paul. The preachers of England, the preachers of England, the coxinators, the preachers, the ecclesiastes, travel all over England with the ecclesia whenever and wherever they could get a group together. In these various assemblies, they would discuss the problems with the kingdom living. Finally, a man named Stephen Langtree, Ecclesiastes of the, mo of the more, more modern times, this was back in uh, 10, uh, 1200, convinced the barons that they needed to force King John, the grandson of William, to sign the Magna Carta. It was done at Runnymede in 1215, and John didn't want to do it either. And they put the sword in the stump and said, you will do it or off come your head. 
the church, the Ecclesiastes, the uh, Ecclesia, the kingdom people said this is the way it's going to be. Before William the Conqueror came in there, that's the way it was. They had the captains of tens, captains of fifties, captains of hundreds. And they then elected what they called the Whitehands. And they were all uh, Saxons and Angiles and Vikings from, from Europe that went in there to do this. But they lost it. Now, the preachers, because they were good speakers, because they knew what Jesus said about kingdom living in those days, they went to these association meetings and told them what they had to do. And at the same time, the churches of England had their share of priestcraft within the walls of the churches. So there were reprobate preachers that went out there and did this for the people because it was kingdom discussion. It was kingdom living. And they did their thing. And yet at the same time, all around them was still the priestcraft of England. We in our country had the same thing before the Revolutionary War. The people of America had dropped away. There was a falling away from the church in the United States, much for the same reason. And so the churches were not doing their job in teaching kingdom living here either. When churches, the, in, in, in whatever period of time, discuss only sweet Jesus and the sweet bye-bye on a cloud, they are not talking about kingdom living. There is going to be a falling away. You can only hear that so much before there's a falling away. We want to know what we've got to do to make our life more godly. When King George started his heavily oppression of the American people, they went into the committees of correspondence, production of handbills, and they, that was described to the excesses of the government. They had meetings. Again, it was called the Ecclesia, the Ecclesiastes. They had them in taverns and homes, wherever they could. It didn't take long till the established churches got it all figured out that they'd better join. And so reprobate preachers, and you can read their actual sermons. John Quincy, and just the name of multitude of them there, went out and gave sermons that would curl your hair as to what you've got to do to King George. So when the church gets active in what they need to do, we then will get a revival. Now the American people again have left their churches by the droves because of the drivel they hear from so many of these pulpits in Judeo-Christian America. They are again meeting in small groups in and out of way places to discuss the ways of this current dilemma. These are fine Christian folks. And as yet, only a few preachers are taking the time to go to their meetings to explain what God would want us to do. That's our job, folks. That's our job. There have been many stumbling blocks that Arijan described. When the mainline preachers fall into the category that Peter discussed in 2 Peter 16, we won't get anywhere but deeper into bondage. Let me read it again. As also in all of his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, 
which they are not, are unlearned and unable uh, an unstable rest, as they do also all other scriptures unto their own destruction. That is what we're doing in our churches. They're wrestling with something they shouldn't be wrestling with. So in the second part of this message, I want to give some of the history of the churches that John the Revelator gave us in the book of Revelation and what this meant as in real terms to us here in the living and now. Thank you very much, and God bless you for having patience put up with me.